Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 5-6. What did John the Baptist mean when he said he was baptizing for repentance? And what about the unquenchable fire? Can we be too prepared for baptism? Answers to these questions and more as we study Matthew chapter 3. Hello again, everyone. It's good to be back together on this study of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we have we've spent the last couple of weeks on what's Matthew's prologue, chapter 1 and 2, and now with chapter 3, um, the ministry of Jesus begins. We're going to be looking at uh, John the Baptist's ministry and at Jesus' baptism. You know, <clears throat> 44 plus years ago, as a young man who was unchurched and didn't really understand what was going on except that I knew Jesus had captured my heart. And uh, I heard the pastor say, if you are committed to following Jesus, then come into the waters of baptism. And that was good enough for me. And I still remember that night, 1977, and and uh, I had a few friends and a little bit of family. They, none of them understood what on earth I was up to. But you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was able to attend the baptism of one of my granddaughters, and I I realized that all those years ago I had no idea of the of the power of what was happening uh, to me and how that would that would uh, expand and grow. As scripture says the vines would go over the wall to my children and to my grandchildren. So let's look at uh, chapter three. Starting at the beginning, verse 1 to 5, In those days John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. All four Gospels, um, Jesus' ministry is prefaced by John the Baptist's appearance. Uh, Matthew is making a, a, a sudden shift now to from the background of, of Jesus as, a, as an infant uh, to his ministry, and so uh, we jump without any explanation. We, we jump ahead about 30 years. And John the Baptist, you know, he's not a minor character. He's major, major, major character in the, in the whole uh, range of salvation history. He was a bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament. In fact, the church fathers uh, all saw John the Baptist as a prophet. Now, there's also a pretty sharp line between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus, it was remission of sin. John, it was a baptism in water. Jesus, it was baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and that kind of moves us ahead. Uh, Matthew's looking ahead to after Jesus' ascension and the, and the Holy Spirit falling with tongues of fire. Now, what Matthew is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is near. Uh, there's, there's two elements here. One, obviously, repent. And it's an interesting word. It, it's got some subtlety to it. The word is metanoia. And, and it, it, repent in, in the New Testament means to go beyond grief over our sin, but it doesn't ignore that. Um, and it even is a little bit beyond just turning around, going the other way, changing our mind. In the fullest sense, repentance is, is a radical transformation of the entire person. It, it, it's a turnaround of both mind and action. And this, this turnaround does include grief, but the result is what John calls the fruit of repentance. So repentance is, is the first element of, 
of John's declaration at the beginning of this chapter. The second is the kingdom of heaven. And and we're going to say lots more about that. And I did talk a little bit about the kingdom when we were laying the introductory foundation a few weeks ago. But when Matthew speaks of the kingdom of heaven, among other things, he's talking about the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the promise made uh, to David. And remember, we taught that that explicitly right at the beginning of the genealogy, the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, the son of David. Secondly, he's talking about the day of the Lord, and, and there's overtones here of uh, of judgment, of of uh, of what will be developed in the book of Revelation. And, and thirdly, <clears throat> he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is a huge theme through that gospel. He's saying that Jesus He's the king, but he's the Messiah all at once. So he's really like King Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is both the kingdom of the Father and the kingdom of the Son. We're going to see this again and again through Matthew's gospel. And he says that it's come near. It's come near. You know, it's so interesting. When Jesus talks about the kingdom through the, the gospels, he says it's, 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 it's at hand it's come near, it is here, it, it, it will come. There's multi-layer meanings. Uh, I think that really what Matthew is saying is that, that the kingdom uh, is, as George Eldon Ladd said, is the already and the not yet. He's saying that the kingdom has come with Jesus uh, and this kingdom is demonstrated by his teaching and his miracles. But he's also saying it will come with his death and resurrection, and ultimately it will come at the end of the age, at his second coming, the summing up of all things, Paul says to the Ephesians. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of apocalyptic, uh, end-of-the-world, and political expectations, and the people put that on to what they thought Messiah was about. Therefore, Jesus really purposely used veiled words and expressions uh, throughout this gospel uh, to express uh, the kingdom. And we're going to see this again and again. And John the Baptist goes on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, but but in it we also see allusions, references to an amazing chapter, Isaiah 35, 6, for water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The the desert is a theme that we'll we'll touch on for the next two chapters. Um, the, The... Matthew is is very intentional as I, as I keep saying there's not a wasted word or phrase but but this whole reference to uh the desert Jesus came to be baptized uh into the desert in Judea but Judea at that time felt like a deserted people deserted by the visitations of God uh for centuries in fact there was a there was a a rabbinic tradition that that said that that God would not be speaking that that it would be silent until Messiah came but besides being a, a desolate place a place of spiritual barrenness physical barrenness the desert is also a place of of visitation and of intimacy many many times especially in the prophetic books of the of the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples, but there's a lot of them. Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. I remember the devotion of your youth. This is God speaking to Israel. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in, in a land not yet sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Hosea 2.14 he he speaks he speaks as the as the lover as the groom he says therefore i will now allure her 
and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Not I'm going to bring her out of the wilderness, but but I'm going to lead her right into the wilderness, that place of, of quiet, that place of separation, and speak gently to her. The desert was also a place of restoration and promise. It's so important for us, as we've said a couple of times in this series so far, for for us to, in looking for kind of that spiritual meaning, that deeper meaning, we have to begin with the literal meaning. And as we heard on, on week two, what is what do we mean by the literal meaning? It, it, in essence, it is what is the truth that Matthew is trying to convey here? So there, there's there's a strong truth uh, around desert. By the way, um, Matthew's readers would have known these verses. These were well-known verses. Let me give you uh, a couple of these desert and water verses uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah 41, 18 and 19, I will fill the desert with pools of water. How many times have I heard that one uh, referred to? How many times have I prayed that one? Rivers fed by springs will flow across the parched ground. I will plant trees in the barren desert, cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, cypress, fir, and pine. Uh, Isaiah 43, 19, I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? Again, a passage that that we've all of us heard many times and prayed in prayer meetings and so forth. But here's the new thing he's about to do. I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. They would recognize that with, with the forerunner, with John the Baptist coming, and just a few verses later, Jesus, that that these, these desert scriptures of promise, of blooming, of life are now beginning. The desert was so important to in Matthew's writing. You know, we've got we've got the parallels that I talked to you about a, a couple of weeks ago with Moses and Jesus and and Israel forty years in the desert. Uh, David wandered in the desert before he became king. Elijah just appears out of the desert and goes back into the desert. Uh, I think even when when uh, Matthew was describing the way John the Baptist dressed, it was a clear and purposeful allusion um, to Elijah. And remember, one of the last verses uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Masoretic text, is uh, Malachi 4.5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So now let's look a little bit more at 6 to 12. They were baptized by him, that's John the Baptist, in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, how to win friends, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Whoa, that's quite a passage, isn't it? In in that time, first century Palestine, Gentiles who turned to Judaism, uh, who were converted, were baptized. It was, it was a pouring, and it was a little different, but they were baptized 
Jews were not baptized. But John's baptism is given to the Jews. Therefore, his the very fact that he's baptizing is a, a critique, none too subtle, on Jewish society that it's, it no longer constitutes the, the holy people of God. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But one of the verses that stands out is they came to him from all over, and what did they do? They confessed their sins. I remember a number of years ago, I was ministering in rural uh, West Kenya, and uh, there was a baptism going to happen. And there was one mountain stream, and, and I remember that the, the young men put up logs made like a dam early in the morning, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the, the stream had backed up enough that they could baptize. But what I really remember as I, I was simply an observer, uh, the pastors that we were working with, they did the baptizing. But what I remember is they didn't... The, those being baptized didn't just come up and they said, do you believe in Jesus and do you promise to follow him and then I baptize you. Rather, each one of them, just like we see in verse 6, confessed their sins. I don't mean they said, I'm a sinner. I, the one that I remember years later is a young lady, probably about 19, weeping, and her mother was out in the crowd, and she's repenting for the way she treated her over the, her teen years. And, and I am so sorry I did this and this, and please forgive me. It was very interesting. And the contrast, frankly, with modern, comfortable, kind of evangelical baptism— where there is perhaps a short confession of faith. Sometimes I don't even see that. And, uh, and there, there's, it's just easy. It's just comfortable. And, uh, I think sometimes it's too easy and too comfortable. It, there's an interesting thing. I'm almost conflicted because I, I don't really think that we need to go through weeks and weeks of, of catechism of baptism class, which did develop later in the late second and into the third century. I don't think we need to do that. But I think that there needs to be a true repentance. It needs to be really heartfelt. It's a, it's a no turning back moment. And I think that should be reflected in, in how, we, how we do baptism. Anyway, I'll move on from that. It's interesting that these religious folks come and he says, you know, you're a brood of vipers. He deals harshly with them. It, what's he doing this for? Is he like this angry guy? No. He understands that their religious traditions and, and their sense of their religious pedigree has hardened their hearts, and he's trying to get through to them. Um, just like Paul does in his writings, this is part of what's called rhetoric. He's trying to break through. And he's saying, your religious pedigree and even your observance is not enough. Maybe he's even hinting here that they're of no consequence. Anyway, he says, you need to bring forth true repentance. Uh, and, and true repentance, he's, he's telling us, is not a matter of, of words or ritual, but a real change of life. By the way, this is going to be a major theme all the way through Matthew's gospel, going back to the uh, beginning of where I, I lay the foundation. This is, this is the most ethical of the four gospels. He's saying your faith must mean different actions. Um, he's saying... You know, being uh, a child of Abraham, being a Jew, um, inheritance in the flesh, in other words, is not required. Maybe it's even irrelevant. It's an inheritance in Abraham's faith. One of the early church fathers, Hillary, said this, Dignity of origin consists in examples of works. I like that. It's a very compressed idea, but let me say it one more time. Dignity of origin consists in examples of works. Fruits of repentance anticipate faith in Christ. They are fruit of the Jesus way, of what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to look a little bit at that next week. So John goes on and he says, even now the axe is at the root of the tree. 
John recognizes that the kingdom of heaven has now arrived, and therefore there is an imminent decision needed. This is not something we put off and put off and put off. He's saying now, because the axe is, it's at the root, it's near the root, but it's not yet cutting the root. And I think Matthew, through John, is saying that it's not inevitable that it's cut. It depends on us, as it depended on John's listeners. He didn't want them to become passive, yet he wanted them to know that it's possible even in just a short time. Hence, now, even in a short time, to be changed, to be converted, to be saved. Unbelief separates the religious leaders from the faith and the blessing of the patriarchs. Another one of the church fathers, Cyril, saw that in the root, that although the unfaithful branches had been cut off, um, that the root remained and that the Gentiles were being grafted into this root. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. John's baptism is preliminary. It's for repentance. But it is preparing the way for a more powerful baptism. He's saying, I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I was thinking about fire a little bit as I prepared this. There's two classic passages in Deuteronomy 4.24 and echoed in Hebrews 12.29 that says, Our God is a consuming fire. My conviction is, looking through Scripture, it is not a fire of wrath, but it is a fire that that is all-powerful. Just like fire is stronger than all the earthly elements, uh, he means that God prevails over everything. He's able to prevail. He's able to create, to accomplish. He's able to nourish. He's able to make grow. He's able to save all authority. And that's why I think he used the example of fire. I came to bring a fire upon the earth, Jesus said in Luke's gospel, 1249. This clearly was about cleansing, purifying not about eternal judgment. So his fire creates in us both holy fear and it illuminates, it brings light to us. At a time when most Jews felt that the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn until the Messianic age dawned, with this announcement of John the Baptist, Messiah is coming, he's coming to baptize with Holy Spirit, with fire, with this announcement, There was an excited expectation arising in Judea. So now let's look at the baptism of Jesus, reading verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased." The baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the first step uh, for him of being launched into uh, ministry by the Father. Um, Next week, we'll look at the next step. Jesus would have walked about 70 miles from Galilee down to where John was baptizing in Judea. He did this to fulfill all righteousness. This shows how important and how seriously he took this moment. You know, again, I, I touched on it a minute ago, but but I, I so much want us to, just as I said, we enter this gospel as holy ground, that uh, it's... Um, I think we enter baptism in the same way. There is a reverence about baptism. Um, And uh, it's like marriage. You know, I've performed, I have no idea how many marriages over 40 years, but 
And I would announce it is not to be entered upon lightly or unadvisedly. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful, but it's reverent. One time I was in northern India. Uh, no, I was in central India, I just remembered. And, um, and I was preaching at a, at a small church about a half a mile from a village. And as I began to, to speak, people kept coming and coming. So they stopped and they moved the sound system outside. And we carried on and they came and they came. And um, it was amazing, this little village, which was all Hindu and Muslim, almost all. And, uh, and yet that, that morning... People who'd just been out for a walk, heard the gospel, responded to Christ, said yes. And um, we had a, a team bus there. And I remember saying to the, the local leader, is there a body of water near here? And there was. So I talked to them about baptism being like, like a marriage. It's like no turning back. And I remember... Uh, 16, I believe it was. It could have been 19, but for sure it was 16. Uh, plus our team, we piled into this bus and we went to this, this big pond. And I remember they had to shoo away water buffaloes. And um, I went in and I stood in the muck and I was sinking down and I was in the water for probably an hour, hour and a quarter. I could feel things crawling up and down my legs. But these folks who two hours before didn't know who Jesus was, such such a transformation, which only the Holy Spirit can do, had happened, that they came to the baptism with incredible reverence. And in fact, I remember many of them, as I would, they'd come up out of the water, and remember they had no context, except their heart had been drawn to Jesus. They came up out of the water, and as I'd start to pray for them, many of them, they just went back down into the water, uh, it's like they were falling under the power of God. And I remember we had a couple of young guys help drag some of them out. And the Spirit of God touched every single one of them. You know, it's this balance that I talked about a few minutes ago about baptism. It doesn't mean we have to go through a lot of ritual. We saw that a few minutes ago, John talking to the religious leaders. But it does mean that there's a real expectation of something very real happening. Now, here when, when John the Baptist said, no, 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 I should be baptized by you, what we're seeing is his humility. You know, he'd been followed by huge crowds. There was adulation. There was attention. And yet he remained humble. He gives grace to the humble, Scripture says several times. And it was John uh, who said in John 3.30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So I feel like when he said, Jesus, when he said to Jesus, I should be baptized by you, he's saying, I I'm just a man. You are Messiah, Son of God. Uh, I'm a sinner. You're without sin. I don't know if John understood all of the mystery, but he knew who he was, and he knew who Jesus was. And Jesus said, John, we've got to do it to fulfill all righteousness. Well, there have been so, there's been so much written about what that verse means. But let me just lay out a few things, it, it seems to me, and to others. Jesus was about to bestow a new baptism, uh, and it was for the salvation of all humanity. Uh, it was for the final forgiveness of sin. Remember, John's baptism was repentance. Jesus was about remission. Jesus is seen very much in this portion of the gospel— well, and in others too, as the, the suffering servant, which is a theme in Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah 42, 1 says, Here is my servant who I uphold, who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the servant who suffered and who will die in order to accomplish redemption in obedience to what the Father told him to do. Jesus fulfills all righteousness by, by humbly entering the ranks of the sinners and, and acting on their behalf. You know, we often talk about up at, at Golgotha, at Calvary, he wasn't alone. He, there was 
two thieves, sinners on either side of him. But we see this prefigured here at his baptism. He wasn't baptized all alone. He was baptized along with all these other people at the Jordan. It speaks of of his identification. He never stood apart, but always among the people. And, And here we see Matthew, he's setting the stage for what he says in chapter 8, that Jesus would bear their weaknesses. He would, he would bear all the, the, their, their, their sin, their pain, etc. And, and that, that this is part of the process of him, Matthew 20, giving his life. Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus is to be humanity's representative on the cross, he first must be fully identified with them. I think that's why his his church is about inclusion and identification and not separation. Jesus set the example all the way back to his baptism. Now, Jesus, of course, was not baptized for his sin, so he wasn't fulfilling righteousness that way. He had no sin. But he, he was baptized so he could sanctify the waters of baptism to wash away the sin of all who would enter them. Again and again and again, we see church fathers going all the way back to the second century, stressing this, that there's a sanctification of the very waters of baptism that happens, and this is the fulfillment of all righteousness. Um, you know, John is sanctified by the water, but Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> he gives the sanctification. He gives grace. He calls for the people, John calls for the people to repent from their sins. But Jesus forgives their sins. Not without a call for repentance, but he's able to forgive. There's quite a difference in the two baptisms. This is why I think uh, it was so important for uh, Priscilla and Aquila, we read uh, in Acts 18, to explain to a, a, a gifted teacher, Apollos, um, he, he only knew about John's baptism of repentance. And, and it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Jesus' baptism is, is something that takes us beyond John's baptism. Another one of the church fathers, Chromatius, uh, he, he sees foreshadowing happening in the Old Testament. When when Israel was led uh, through and across the Jordan River to come into the promised land, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of the Lord, went before them. And now here we are, all those years later, centuries and centuries later, and we're at the same waters of the Jordan River. And um, Chromatius said this, the first path of the heavenly way has been opened to us, along which we are led to the blessed land of promise. Joshua was Israel's leader, but for us, Jesus Christ, the Lord, stands uh, through baptism, the leader of eternal salvation. Christ was baptized for three reasons, at least. One, so that as a man, he may fulfill all righteousness. Remember, I spoke to you on the very first chapter one about Matthew stressing the humanity of Christ. The second thing, so that that he might testify to the Jewish people that God had sent him. His baptism and all that took place was a testimony that there could be no doubt he was sent by the Father. And thirdly, that through the descent of the Holy Spirit, who landed on him like a dove, it says in all four Gospels, that he might sanctify the waters so that all uh, might be sanctified. Now, I want to go back to a theme that I can never get away from very often, and that's what's called the kenosis, the emptying. Jesus demonstrates his humility in both his 70-mile journey to obey and his willingness, even though he was sinless, to be baptized by John. And his 
his humility, again, was part of the fulfilling all righteousness. I'll just give you a few verses from Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself. And then a little further down, it says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So he goes into the waters of baptism, and when he comes up, something remarkable. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The voice is that of the father's. God the Father has broken his silence at this point and is again revealing himself to humans. Remember, the, the the 300 years before were often called the 300 silent years. Now he has broken his silence. It's a clear sign that the messianic age has begun. And he says, this is my son. He introduces Jesus as the son of God. Matthew's going to pick this up in the next chapter and throughout his gospel. So this marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and immediately heads him into direct conflict with Satan. Now, I have taught on the baptism of Jesus uh, for many, many years. Uh, Almost any country I go to, at some point I talk about this. This was the pivotal moment. This was the launching pad for his ministry, but more than that, this this set the compass at true north. See, Jesus came with two needs that I think we have. The empowering of the Holy Spirit, he came to his baptism with that, and the second was the affirmation of the Father. So he was empowered by the Spirit, but in the affirmation, he hears, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He hears, you are my beloved son, that that you belong to me. And I love you, and I'm proud of you. And here's what I've taught for years. Those three statements from the Father uh, establish something absolutely deep in his life, the, the great needs, I think, of every heart. But even Jesus' heart were met. First of all, he says, you belong to me. Every one of us has a great need to belong to someone. And if that's met... If we know we belong, it gives us the strength of identity. We know who we are, and nothing can ever take that away from us. And he says, you're my beloved son. You belong to me, and I love you. These words, and, you know, 40 years of pastoring, how many times have I heard, especially men, in tears with me, saying, I never heard this. I didn't know if my dad loved me. I had to just assume. Well, Jesus hears his father say, I love you. And, and when we hear that, it gives us a great sense of security, this affirmation. It's the unconditional, unchanging love of the father. It's a love that won't let go. And frankly, it frees us just like it freed Jesus to, to step out. And no matter what situation he was in, he knew that he was affirmed. He knew he was secure in the love of God. And thirdly, he said, I'm well pleased with you. Jesus hadn't even started any ministry yet, but he says, I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of you. And this praise gives him confidence, a deep core confidence. So the father in his baptism, Jesus is not only anointed for service by the Holy Spirit, but the father gives him the strengths of identity, security, and confidence. And uh, these shaped his entire life. And if I was preaching and not teaching, I would, I would unwrap that more and talk about how important that is as, for us as, as fathers and mothers, as grandfathers and grandmothers, to affirm that again and again and again in the children. The last thing I want to talk about is the Trinity, because in the baptism of Christ, we have the clearest example of the Trinity in all of the New Testament. There were mysteries that were unfolding at Jesus' baptism that could only begun to be understood in light of the cross. 
We talked about that on week two, how, how it's the cross that, that helps us make sense of the Old Testament. It's the cross that I believe helped the, uh, the four evangelists, the four writers of the Gospels, to make sense of, of what took place at the baptism. Maybe even John the Baptist couldn't fully see all that was taking place in the spiritual realm. You know, these were mysteries known by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, um, the Trinity, which is the full nature of God, began to be revealed here on earth. The heavens opened up to show us the transcendent nature of what was taking place. His baptism created a relationship between this earthly realm and the things above. Jesus talks a lot about that in John's gospel. The confirmation of the Father with his words, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, show us that those born of baptism are born of the Trinity and will return to the Trinity. If you are born again of Christ, you are born again of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the mystery of Jesus' baptism, the Son appears living in the body as a man. He is a tangible man. Back to the Matthew's emphasis on his humanity. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. The voice of the Father is heard from heaven. The Father testifies that Jesus is his Son. The Holy Spirit is joined together in this with the Father and the Son. Thus, the unity of the Trinity is declared and demonstrated. You can't understand the Father apart from the Son and the Holy Spirit and in every combination thereby. The Church Fathers saw great significance in the image of the dove. Um, which again is mentioned in all four Gospels. Origen, one of the great church fathers, said this, the Spirit descended in the form of a dove since wherever there is reconciliation with God, there is a dove, as in the case of Noah's Ark, announcing God's mercy to the world and at the same time making clear that what is spiritual should be meek and without wickedness, simply and without guile. It's interesting, isn't it, that that in and out of of church tradition, the the dove has become the universal emblem of peace. Another church father, St. Augustine, said this about the Trinity revealed at the baptism. This ineffable divinity, abiding ever in itself, making all things new, creating and creating anew, sending and recalling judging, delivering. This Trinity, I say, we know to be at once indescribable and inseparable. Part of the the wonder, I, I love reading and I love meditating and I love just being quiet with the Lord around his baptism for, for what took place, what he heard from his Father, and how the Trinity is revealed. Let me finish really quickly, just a quick summary of some things that that I feel so strongly about the Trinity. One of the greatest shifts, one of the greatest elements in my life in the last six, seven, eight years has been the the discovery or at least rediscovery of the Trinity. So let me just finish with some very simple thoughts. God is Trinity. He's not like a Trinity. He is Trinity. This is how God is God. Uh, when, When this becomes revelation, our relationship with the infinitely relational communal God changes forever. Um, without being the Trinity, he wouldn't be God. Secondly, the beauty of God is revealed in Trinity. The Trinity is beautiful. In contemplating the triune God, the Trinity, we are gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, as David said. And as we behold his beauty, we are being transformed from from glory to glory. Our likeness, our understanding is changing. Paul said that, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Trinity is infinitely and eternally inclusive. The self-giving, other-loving, joyful, celebrating activity 
of what's been called the divine dance is for us to participate in. Uh, we are invited and included into this activity, and we just got a taste of it here at the baptism. There is no domination in the Trinity. There's only humility, uh, each one honoring the other. In the Trinity, there's constant deferral. Trinity doesn't care who gets the credit. This is partly, in a practical way, why why I need to, and I think we need to meditate on the Trinity. There's just this honoring and rejoicing in the other. The Trinity is a circle of shared life. It's called perichoresis. In its perfect unity, in its self-giving, and its, its other celebrating. And this, what we see at the baptism, is what is at the center of the cosmos. This is eternal life. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've been enjoying this series on Matthew. I know I certainly am. I, I just got a whole bunch out of that. Uh, and I, I do have some questions for us for just some follow-up discussion. Um, but just before we do that, I just I want to mention that today's episode is brought to you by our Crisis Pregnancy Fund. Uh, in Uganda, we are rescuing teenage girls from really high-risk situations. I, I recently heard a story about a, a young woman they found sleeping in a, an abandoned shack uh, surrounded by just trash refuse, uh, a pregnant girl who was so traumatized she could barely speak. Uh, and so our team is working to take her into the shelter, care for her long-term, uh, care for her baby uh, once that's born. So we're covering the costs of the pregnancy is basically what Impact Nations is doing. We partner with an organization called The Remnant Generation. They've got a shelter where they welcome these girls in and care for them through their whole pregnancy. We cover the costs of their prenatal exams. We cover the costs of their delivery, labor and delivery, and then uh, the antenatal or uh, post-delivery uh, uh, care as well, even nursery in the, in the hospital, things like that. So uh, if, you, if you'd like to rescue a girl uh, who is just facing unbelievable trauma, uh, often as a result of abuse from a relative, uh, and they've fled. They're often living in the streets. Um, sometimes they're still living with their abuser. And our team fights for justice as they remove these girls from high-risk situations. And, yeah. uh, and uh, In fact, today I was just texting with Annabelle. The team spent the entire day with the police today on, on one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so fighting for justice. But one of the ways that we can help, one of the ways that you can help, uh, is by helping us to cover the cost of those pregnancies so that these babies are born uh, healthy and strong. And we're just we're able to rescue two lives at once, really. Um, if you'd like to learn more about that, you can just head to impactnations.com/pregnancy, and uh, you can read more about our program and, and give today. So thanks so much. All right. <laughs> On that note, uh, Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist. Yes. Uh, I. I wanted to start with something you mentioned your baptism at the beginning and and talked about you you had no idea the the ramifications of that and the the multi-generational ramifications yeah. of that and stuff. And then later on in your in your teaching today, you talked you told a story and I've heard you tell many of these stories about kind of these spontaneous baptisms of people are getting saved, let's get to the water and get them baptized. Mm-hmm. Um and it got me thinking. You know, you uh you said you didn't fully grasp all of the ramifications. I'm guessing when you got baptized, you probably didn't fully grasp all of the tenets of the faith, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and that took another week. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, those who have been baptized in, in India, uh, Bulgaria, things like that, they perhaps don't fully grasp that which they're being baptized into. There are there's a really wide variety of traditions in terms of baptism preparation. For sure. Uh, and you know, some traditions, babies get baptized, which means basically zero preparation, probably not a class that a baby can take. But others, you're going through many weeks of classes. Mm-hmm. And you actually talked about this in your book, First Church Restored, I recall. Yep. Can you speak to that? Is there a sweet spot in terms of preparation for 
baptism, understanding what you are being baptized into? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if there's a sweet spot because it varies in different situations. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when I was in India and recognized this is my opportunity, I'm not coming back to this village. There's a pastor who's going to disciple them. Yeah. But um, so I took time. We didn't just say, hey, who wants to get baptized? And we ran into the bus. I took time explaining. Uh, I used some of the metaphors that, that Peter uses and Paul uses. Uh, I explained it. I remember likewise, there was about 100 people came to Christ under this big, huge tree on an island in the Philippines about four or five years ago. Yeah. And same thing, when I recognized, oh, and I had a sense both times, like, we're supposed to do this right now. Yeah. But... Um, to go too long, as as I you mentioned, I, I said in First Church Restored, uh, I think is not a good idea. Um, so I don't like know to if, wait too long between yeah when to, they to you know the the, the six eight ten month uh, ten week baptism class. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it in yeah. in in the Book of Acts. Repent and be baptized. Yeah, right. Whether you're a jailer in Philippi or. Somebody in Jerusalem. Hey, the eunuch in the middle of the desert. They found Absolutely. a puddle somewhere in the desert and did it right there. You have to trust the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's a, it's a trust thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's kind of my answer. But I certainly don't believe in being kind of casual about it okay. at all. Yeah. So there's a tension there. And as leaders, as disciple makers, we've got to, we've got to find that balance. And I think we need to present those who want to be baptized with the reverence of it, mm -hmm. the seriousness of it, uh, not in any way to frighten them off, but that it is not done lightly, as I said, or unadvisedly, like yeah. marriage. Yeah. Good. Um, all right. I want, I want to pick on you a little bit. You talked about the fire uh, as... John gets into it with the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers. Funny enough, you read in Mark, it's not long after that he ends up in prison. I'm wondering if one has to do with the other. but It does, uh, and, and <laughs> we'll, see it, uh, we'll see it in chapter 4 of, of Matthew. Mm. So as he's speaking, he talks about the fire, and you talked about the fire as like a purifying fire. But verse 12, which you didn't have time to get into today— uh, is where he talks about the winnowing fork and the, the separating yeah. of the wheat from the chaff. Yep. And my guess is that most people uh, approach that, read that scripture, and assume when they read the words unquenchable fire, <laughs> when they see the metaphor of separating wheat from chaff, uh, we're talking people here, and people are either going to heaven or going to hell, to put it nice and simple. Uh, your thoughts? Well, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, uh, how many days do yeah. we have? Uh, let me just say this. Yeah. I, I referenced, uh, and I recently had a discussion with Brad Jerzak, I mm -hmm. referenced rhetoric in the New Testament. Yes. And it's a word we don't use much, we don't really understand a lot anymore, but it was basic in uh, the ancient times. Yeah. And it is about changing somebody's way of thinking. And so whether it's almost flattery, you know, you were like children to me, Paul, you know, I was like a mother, mm -hmm. or, or whether you quick pivot and say, you are, you are in huge trouble. Um. I uh, I think this is some rhetoric, okay. but I do believe rhetoric is it's serious. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe he is a consuming fire. Paul makes it to me very clear. First Corinthians chapter three is just as crystal clear as can be. But I don't think it is a fire about eternal damnation. Okay. In fact, I'm convinced it's not. It is a purifying fire, and at some point you go through the fire. And uh, it is way better to deal with things now. Yeah. So in this metaphor, the wheat and the chaff mm -hmm. are people. Yep. In Matthew 28, or Matthew 25, we get into the sheep and the goats. Yep. Uh, so they are people, but what you're saying is that that unquenchable fire, you believe, is a purification, not an eternal it's damnation It's a purification. Metaphor. And I think that, and again, we're going to go down some big roads if we're not careful yeah. here, but, but you know... Uh, 
eternal life is the term that John used, mm -hmm. almost as parallel with the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. What he's talking about is the life that we live now where we experience the grace of God. We yeah. experience the goodness of God. We operate in the in the rhythm of the kingdom, the term that you know yes. I like so much. Uh, and that is, let's call that a, a wheat life. Yeah. And a chaff life is when we are going against the grain. Yeah. As as uh, Jesus said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Yeah. If we were in the middle of a longer session with somebody like Brad, I'd probably want to get into that word unquenchable on on the fire, but we don't have time today to do that. So if you want to know, if you want to hear us talk more about the word unquenchable, uh, let us know. Write, write us an email at podcast at impactnations.com. Um, you had a really interesting contrast a few minutes ago. You talked about John calls for the repentance of sin, and Jesus comes offering forgiveness. Yeah. And then you kind of, as an aside, said there's a call for repentance too, but there's forgiveness. Yeah. And I was reminded, I actually was just commenting with some friends last night as we've been reflecting recently in this season on the Easter story and things like that. When Christ is on the cross, he offers forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them. Absolutely, and, and even Brad makes pointed an out a while back, he makes an excuse for him. Yeah, um, and there isn't any repentance that comes from that precedes that forgiveness. Does repentance is it required for forgiveness? How does that work? I think repentance must be. I mean, Paul said, "Repent and be baptized." Peter said on the day of Pentecost, "Repent." Mm -hmm. um, Jesus uh, isn't shy to say, "Repent." We're going to see. He uses the same phrase next yeah. chapter. Um, but I believe, again, that repentance is about coming into that eternal life. Yeah. And, you know, it's like what I love to, to kind of paraphrase. I was just reading it this morning, John 8, the woman caught in adultery, everybody yeah. leaves, and he says, neither do I condemn you. And, and then you can read it like, now, go and sin no more. I think what he's really saying is, you're free. Yeah. And he it's an invitation the, yeah, to sin. He no whom more. the Son yeah. says free is free indeed, right? Yeah. It, it, you're free. You don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, we've spent a lot of time. But that's not the same as ignoring it. No, yes, exactly. You know, we've spent some time. There's a discipleship group that you lead uh, for those of us who are, are leaders in impact nations and lead journeys and things like that. And we talk, we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years talking about the nature of the gospel and our gospel message. Um, and the, the nature of forgiveness and things like that. And in that discussion, I've come to realize that forgiveness, it is finished. Like, it's done. Forgiveness has been offered. It has been purchased for us. But repentance is a turning around to enter into it. You can't, you can't keep walking in this direction if the forgiveness is behind you. You have to turn towards the forgiveness and begin walking into what has already been purchased for you and already been freely offered by Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right, next week, I'm guessing, just a hunch, that we're going to be moving into chapter four, which is uh, the temptation of Christ. And I am I just wondered if you could just tease this out just a little bit in terms of the order. I, it seems strange to me that Jesus gets baptized, there's this incredible moment where the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and then he's gone. He goes into the desert and he disappears. Like You'd think, like, all right, now we're cooking with gas, so here we go. Yeah. I'm guessing, though, that the there is some significance to the very, order of very these much, events. Very yeah. much. It's interesting, because in Luke's account, in Luke, uh, Luke 4, uh, he says that... Um, you know, he was led out by the Spirit. Yeah. And it's not a, well, I think I'll do this now. And I think that uh, desert, I'll be talking about some of that, but yeah. desert, wilderness, and anointing, empowering, um, and including refining yeah. for us, uh, absolutely are tied in together. Yeah. And uh, not only was there a... a, a an initial victory over the accuser, over Satan, but there there was an empowering that happens through this. Mm. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, all right, 
If you want to catch that and you don't want to miss out on anything happening here at the Impact Nations podcast, do be sure to hit subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe. Hit the little bell that pops up after that. That way you're going to get notifications when we go live. Uh, we are live here every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Uh, and we'd love to have you join us live. Otherwise, you can watch it after the fact on YouTube. Uh, also, we host all this stuff on our website and in a podcast feed, the audio. So uh, some people like to listen in their car later, things like that. So we've got subscribers from all over the world. You should be one of them. Uh, if you like listening, head to impactnations.com slash podcast. There's an array of buttons for subscribing with whatever podcast app you like to use. Uh, and again, write into us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear uh, what you think of the podcast. I heard from one listener recently. Uh, she actually sent me a screenshot by email. Uh, I've, I don't know if you noticed, but I recently I've been leaning this way a little bit as we talk because when I sit right here, I don't know about the camera angle at the moment, but uh, the, that globe right behind me kind of, you get an orthodox icon halo yeah, sort of a feel. And looks so, good on you, son. Yeah. <laughs> she called me a St. Timmy. Um, so I'm trying to lean now. But anyway, th- that kind of feedback is really helpful. Uh, <laughs> so we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at impactnations.com. Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. God bless you. Bye-bye.